Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And today we're going to talk about the Middle Ages, but maybe not as you expect. Yeah, I think most people think of the Middle Ages and they get a very kind of European view. Yes. Their mind conjures those images. Well, especially since I've I've been looking at sort of the numbers of where our listeners are. Overwhelmingly, United States. And then if you add in like the UK, Australia and Canada, that's like 96% of listeners. Uh And I would imagine that giant chunk of listeners has probably mostly heard about the Middle Ages in the context of Europe. Yeah. uh, Which did give us some pretty cool things. Like the Book of Kells and the Bayou Tapestry, both of which have episodes in the archive. Also, Courtly Love, Beowulf, Canterbury Tales, Song of Roland, lots of interesting and cool literature and art and architecture. But really, other than that, the Middle Ages have this reputation for being this depressed, war-torn, disease-ridden, generally filthy part of history that borrowed most of its advancements from other cultures. And then on top of that, there were the Crusades and the Black Death. So while interesting things happen, very few people, if they could time travel, would be like, Middle Ages are where it's at for me. Totally going there. <laughs> but so number one, that's that perception is not really true of the entirety of the Middle Ages. And number two, that really was the situation in Europe. The same period of time was really different for other parts of the world. And today we're going to talk about the Heian period in Japan, which spanned from 794 to 1185. So kind of a chunk right in the middle of the Middle Ages. The Heian period started when Japan moved its capital from Nara, which is the nation's first uh, permanent capital, to Heian-kyo, which later became Kyoto. During this period, China had a really heavy influence on Japanese culture, and we have a really good idea of what that culture was like, especially within the context of the imperial court, thanks to a woman known as Sei Shonagon. And she served as a lady-in-waiting to the Empress's court and kept a book of observations and lists and other assorted snippets uh, that were about her time there. That's what we're going to talk about today. So people who keep asking for more royalty, mm-hmm. here you go. We have some more royalty, but maybe not the royalty that you were expecting. Well, but we've also gotten requests for uh, non-European royalty. So Indeed. Covering it. Yes. Uh, so just for background, Sei Shonagon was born around 966, and that isn't actually her name. Uh, Shonagon is a rank, which means minor counselor, and Sei is a reference to her father's name. So what her actual name that her family called her at birth was is completely unclear in the historical record. Yeah, we do know who her father was. Her father was Kiyowara no Motosuke. He was a prominent and highly respected poet and a minor public official, We're not totally sure who her mother was, though. One contemporaneous source suggests it was a woman named Hagaki, who was a poet and possibly also a prostitute. Uh, But in spite of having one or possibly two poet parents, Shonagon didn't really have a reputation for being a good poet herself, and she insisted herself that she was terrible at poetry. Another prominent writer at the time, Murasaki Shikibu, uh, author of The Tale of Genji, which most people have heard of, uh, seems not to have liked her, writing in her own diary that Shonagon was gifted but presumptuous and was basically a frivolous woman who liked to put on airs. Uh, as a side note, uh, Murasaki Shikibu also served in the court of Empress Shoshi, who was Empress Teishi's rival. And that's a whole story that we're going to get into and you're going to get the 
the backstory on that bit of drama coming up. Yes. <laughs> because there is a lot of uh, dramatic conflict mm-hmm. in this story. In 993, Shonagon went to serve in the court of Empress Teishi, who we just mentioned. She was also known as Empress Sadako. Some accounts say that Shonagon had been married and divorced before entering service, and that the, her only other two options at that point were either to join a Buddhist convent or to remarry. We don't really know if that's completely accurate, but regardless of the reason, she wound up serving in court for about 10 years, and she documented a lot of that time in her pillow book. And in Japanese, this book, uh, pillow book, is known as Makura no Soshi, or Random Pillow Notes. And Shonagon started writing hers towards the end of her time at court. But there's a story to how this actually happened. Paper was, at that time, really expensive. Shonagon wrote that the minister of the center, whose name was Korichika, who was also Teishi's brother, brought the empress a gift of paper and asked her what book she would like to have copied onto it. Shonagon said that they should make it a pillow, and there's all kinds of academic discussion about what she actually meant by that, whether it was a joke or a pun, or whether it referred to pillow books that people kept as a matter of course, or whether it referred to the hard pillows that people in Japan were using at that time. But regardless, Teishi gave Shonagon the paper, and Shonagon wrote whatever she wanted to on it. And there's been a fair amount of debate about whether Shonagon ever intended for her work to be read by other people or if it was just for her. Uh, given how expensive paper was and that this paper was actually given to the Empress to provide her with a book for her own library, there is, you know, a logical conclusion that what Shonagon wrote was always supposed to be public. Uh, the writing itself also has a tone that kind of hints that there was a reader in mind. It wasn't just personal inward reflections uh, in diary form like people would normally write if they thought no one was going to look at it. Right. But at the same time, Shonagon also wrote about being extremely embarrassing uh, when somebody took the book and then passed it around at court. In the section called It Is Getting So Dark, which is how the edition that I have of it concludes. She also says that she regrets that the book ever came to light. The end product of this gift of paper and Shonagon's writing is a collection of observations, poems, lists, and other really interesting snippets of life at court. It's part diary. It's part commonplace book. To some degree, it's an essay collection. Uh, and 164 of the things in the book are just lists, lists of hateful things, depressing things, Things, things that make one's heart beat faster, regrettable things. And some of these lists are really just uncannily evocative. Yeah. Today, how all of these different things are arranged in the edition that you read really varies wildly depending on the translation and how it's been edited. We don't really know how they were originally presented because all of the surviving editions of this book are copies from at least 500 years after Shonagon's death. So... You can get a really different experience depending on how the person doing the editing has arranged all these different bits. And in spite of, you know, these outstanding questions of how it originally was arranged and and ordered, uh, the book has survived in one form or another for more than 1,000 years. And today it's considered both a work of art and a historical document. Yeah. One of the first episodes that Holly and I worked on together was on Marjorie Kemp. And her autobiography, which gave a lot of insight into middle class life in medieval England. 
And similarly, Shonagon's Pillow Book has become a primary source of information about court life in Heian, Japan. Her book, as we said before, covers about 10 years that she spent in service there. So the basics on the environment of the book, uh, the empress and her ladies-in-waiting spent a lot of their time in a salon behind screens, curtains, grates, and wall hangings that were all meant to keep men and strangers from seeing them. So they spent a lot of time within the confines of these portable curtains that kept them from view. And they wore layers of dresses and robes with skirts and pants underneath. Yeah, I think if you look at historical uh, pictures, sometimes you'll see the many, many robes, one on top of it, each other. And right. to me, I always think, ooh, that looks beautiful, while other people go, I could never live in that. Yeah, well, it was also a progression of uh, of fashion. Like, it had sort of started as a dress with comfy pants under, and then... Uh, gradually, the fashion trended toward more and more layers. and Because you had to more show and more, more and more beautiful and expensive and luxurious fabric. Yes. That was the whole point. <laughs> I get so excited. Yeah, there are several things in this book that are totally a Polly's Alley. In addition to the pretty fabric, there's stuff about sewing and cats. Yes. Uh, unsurprisingly, there's also a big focus on manners and etiquette and gossip. And on that last point... Shonagon's opinion was that people should not be angry when they are gossiped about because they also gossip about other people. So basically, don't dish it out if you cannot take it. That's kind of my stance. But also just that that's part of the contract you make, being part of a society, that people will discuss other people, and it's not even always in a negative way. Yeah. Some people really abhor the concept that other people are talking about them when they're not present. Yeah, we had a whole... That's going to happen. That's just part of the deal of living with other people. We had a whole episode on the culture of gossip in our prior podcast called Stuff. So many of the passages uh, in this book detail the comings and goings of the emperor and empress and the other officials uh, and whatnot from the court. There are also religious observances noted in it, the primary religious influences being Buddhism and Shinto. Uh, days of abstinence are noted and all kinds of just everyday happenings. One of the themes that comes across in the pillow book that's also common in writing about royal and aristocratic life in the West is that it can be deeply, painfully boring. <laughs> There's a lot of coming up with something to do just to have something to do. Uh, and ladies would sometimes do things like go on religious pilgrimage more for the sake of having an outing than for their own spiritual development. Uh, so some of the things that she documents in this book, lots and lots of festivals and rituals. Uh, for example, the first month after the new year had all kinds of festivals and celebrations. Uh, one of these was the Festival of Blue Horses, which was a tradition that they borrowed from China. Uh, and that is a parade of 21 horses for the emperor, which sounds sort of beautiful. Uh, originally, these horses had been gray, but by the time of Shonagon's writing, white horses were actually used. Uh, and white is the color of purity in the Shinto religion. And the gray horses were also too rare for that to really be a doable thing to herd up 21 of them to parade along. Yeah. The idea of 21 incredibly rare horses is nice and you theory. can see why that would be a parade honoring a high official. Right. There's also the festival of full moon gruel. And that is when people of the court would conceal gruel sticks about their persons to hit one another with. Uh, this came from a belief that being hit in the thighs with the stick that was used to stir the gruel would lead a woman to give birth to a baby boy. And this is a tradition that wasn't unique to the imperial court, and it continued in more rural parts of Japan for a really long time. I'm just 
processing the whack-a-mole element of like determining yeah. your baby's sex. Well, and also the part <laughs> of, of that you're concealing a stick in your sleeve or whatever so that you can whack people whack with it. People. As, it's as a, a good source thing of amusement. Yes, yeah, it's a good thing to hit Well, them. but it's it's really only in some contexts is a, is a good thing. There's a, a whole passage about the scandalousness of, of when a, a gentleman whacked a lady with the oh. gruel stick. That was not okay. It's like um, Baby Predictor Fight Club. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, the also noted in this book are hookups. Speaking of where babies come from, there were many, many hookups. Uh, there is a passage which is entitled, It is So Stiflingly Hot. And it starts out being about how hot it is, which prompts everyone to leave their blinds and sliding doors open. And then it quickly shifts to talking about a number of lovers sneaking away in the morning in full view of everybody, thanks to the heat causing all of those doors to be open. Yeah. That's not the only place that that comes up in the book. From her list of depressing things, one of the items is, it is quite late at night and a woman has been expecting a visitor. Hearing finally a stealthy tapping, she sends her maid to open the gate and lies waiting excitedly. But the name announced by the maid is that of someone with whom she has absolutely no connection. Of all the depressing things, this is by far the worst. And from her list of hateful things, an admirer has come on a clandestine visit, but a dog catches sight of him and starts barking. One feels like killing the beast. Really, a lot of the hateful things are about male visitors making noise or otherwise drawing attention to themselves or acting in a way that was coarse or unseemly. Uh, none of this is really surprising, considering that a lot of the interior walls in the palaces were basically paper partitions and bamboo screens. So while all of these hookups were happening and everyone knew that they were happening, they were also meant to be happening discreetly, making the need for silence and discretion very important. So if you were a guy and you rattled the screen on your way out, people would be angry. You're an oaf. Yes. Yeah. Uh, Overall, the lists of depressing and hateful things are quite long, but big chunks of them are kind of mundane and a little bit uh, petulant. And they sum out to, uh, Tracy describes it as, they are out at salted caramel at Starbucks and today is the worst day ever. Like, they're really just complaints about pretty mundane happenings. Yeah. One of the hateful things is, one is just about to be told some interesting piece of news when a baby starts crying. (laughs) They're kind of ridiculous and awesome and also ridiculous. Petulant. Uh, but there are also other much less awful uh, things in them. One of the depressing things is a lying in room when the baby has died. Uh, so obviously that has a much greater emotional depth than just complaining about things like noise. Uh, another is a lengthier description of someone who has gathered his family to wait with him on the day when the official appointments are made. But he does not get one, and they all gradually leave in ones and twos until he's all alone. So they were expecting good news and did not get it. Yeah, there are things on on the lists that are legitimately bad yeah. and not just kind of whining bad. Um, the unsuitable things list, though, is particularly revealing of aristocratic attitudes about the lower classes. One of the unsuitable things is snow on the houses of common people. This is especially regrettable when moonlight shines down on it. This is because those common people, in air quotes, 
uh, could not fully appreciate how lovely all of that was. And so therefore, the moon shining on the snow was wasted beauty. Which is an offensive idea. It is. Well, it also sort of uh, auto discredits the writer. Like to say that it was wasted because she's enjoying it, <laughs> you know. But it's on a poor person's house, Holly. It's still pretty. There's also love mentioned in this book. In Things That Cannot Be Compared, it goes from the relatively prosaic summer and winter, night and day, rain and sunshine, to when one has stopped loving somebody, one feels that he has become someone else, even though he is still the same person. The book also shows a lot of communicating with people through poetry. In many situations, direct communication was socially unacceptable, but exchanging poems was totally allowed. So people would veil what they wanted to say in poetry and send their thoughts that way. One of the lists in the book is also just a list of poetic subjects. Also, games and other amusements are mentioned, uh, like backgammon or the Chinese board game Go, or building a giant mountain of snow as high as they possibly could in winter. So kind of joyous, fun activities. There are also many, many descriptions of plants and flowers. So what's in bloom, what's growing, what the foliage looks like. Similarly, there are descriptions of beautiful fabrics, art, and clothing. There's really a huge focus on what is beautiful and what brings Shonagone delight. And a lot of these descriptions tie in closely, of course, to Japanese aesthetics. There's aware, which is a sort of pathos or emotional response that comes from fading beauty, like scattering cherry blossoms or the fading noise of a bell, uh, things of that nature. And there's also okashi, which relates to a more fleeting delight or pleasure. And the pillow book overall is more about okashi than aware. Yeah. If we mentioned the tale of Genji earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, that one is more about the sad part, especially by the end. Yeah. Um, and so as the comparison goes, this is sort of the happy elements of court life, mostly, as opposed to the tragically sad, yeah. despairing ones uh, that are more present in the tale of Genji. Maybe the most, say, Shonagoniest passage in this whole thing comes at the end of a passage about how much she loves the Hototo Jisu, which is a type of bird. She says... And I do not love the Hototojisu alone. Anything that cries out at night delights me. Except babies. (laughs) (laughs) We have both the things that delight her and the fact that she could be kind of petty in the things that annoyed her. She seemed to not be big on the babies. Nope. Uh, And before we talk about the the sort of circumstances... Uh, that led to the end of this court life for Shonagone, let's take a minute and talk about our sponsor. Now back to the story of Say Shonagone. So, sadly, the story of Say Shonagone in her pillow book does not have a very happy ending. We talked about how Say Shonagone was in service to the Empress Teishi. And uh, the Empress had become consort to Emperor Ichijo when she was 14 and he was 10. And during this period, the Fujiwara clan was heavily influential in Japanese politics. Women from the Fujiwara clan would marry the emperor, and then their fathers would rule as regents and chancellors. The emperor was still the emperor, but the Fujiwaras were really running the show. Yeah, Teishi's father, Fujiwara no Michitaka, died during an epidemic in 995. And with his death, Teishi's only real protection was her brother, 
Korichika. But her father's brother, Michinaga, wanted his own children in power and not his brother's children. And Michinaga used his political wiles to ease the reins away from Korichika. Then uh, Korichika wound up being exiled from the capital after an escalating misunderstanding with an ex-emperor who Korichika had thought was making moves on his lady. So it was a big uh, romantic misunderstanding. Uh, and this left Heishi with no real backing at court. And it opened the door for Michinaga to position his own daughter, Fujiwara no Akiko, also known as Shoshi, uh, as a new favorite to Emperor Ichijo. So with the Fujiwara clan lined up against him, even the emperor could not really do much to help Taishi, especially since the Empress Dowager, his own mother, also joined in, uh, encouraging him to favor Shoshi instead. And even though it was unheard of for one emperor to have two empresses, Michinaga successfully argued that Taishi and Shoshi could have two different titles and two different roles in court, and that Emperor Ichijo was totally justified in having them both. So Shoshi came to the Imperial Palace in 999 and was named second empress in the year 1000. Say Shonagon's own loyalty during this time was called into question because she had been fond of Michinaga before this whole business started. In that year, Taishi moved to another palace because she was pregnant. Uh, and this was tradition, and Taishi had spent large parts of her two other pregnancies elsewhere. But this time, this all transpired while she was clearly being pushed aside at court. And on top of that, the other palace where she would normally have gone during a pregnancy had burned down. And instead, she had to stay in the home of a senior steward, which obviously paled in comparison to a second palace that she could visit. Uh, her ladies-in-waiting started to leave her service, and she ended up dying in childbirth. And she was only 24 at the time. Most of Shonagon's actual writing of the pillow book happened during this period of instability. Although, it's hard to see that in the text, even if you already know that part of the story and are looking for it. So, while a lot of the pillow book gives us a window into the life of imperial court during Taishi's glory days, it's not so much an actual reflection of the real political situation that was going on while Shonagon was physically writing it. And say Shonagon died around 1025. Uh, basically, nothing is known about the time between when she left the court and when she died, although the lore is that she was lonely and miserable because she had been so catty and uh, kind of petulant at court. In the rest of Japan, the Fujiwara clan's influence started to wane in the middle 1100s. Then in 1185, one of the most powerful warrior clans called the Genji defeated another powerful clan and also their main rivals, the Heike. The Genji then established the first shogun government and the shogun military rule over Japan lasted until 1867. And today, uh, to sort of liken it to modern life, sometimes people like to say that Shonagon is really the first blogger. Uh, and they also sometimes like to say that the pillow book is the first tumbler, which makes a bit of sense. Yeah, considering I mean, you're, you're how much trying to identify ancient concepts with modern yeah, happening. Considering how much of it is sort of random stuff put together and in no real order as she saw it, uh, yeah. together. Um, in kind of an amusing side note, when I the day that I started doing the the research for this podcast, and you know I typed "say Shonagon" into my search bar, 
uh, you know how like a Wikipedia result will come up to the right of your search results? Uh-huh. Um, it, it was, you know, blah, blah, say Shonagone, blah, blah, wrote the pillow book. And then it said, she was also kind of a bee. <laughs> Except it didn't say bee. <laughs> uh, that has since been edited out of the Wikipedia article. So it doesn't say that anymore. So this was probably because she was opinionated. She teased people who got their etiquette uh, and ceremony wrong. She was really pretty scornful of the lower classes. And, you know, her book is full of these lists of hateful and depressing and annoying things that a lot of people on Twitter would probably hashtag first world problems. Yeah, definitely speaking from a position of uh, privilege. Yeah. Being annoyed by things that are really not real issues. I had forgotten how... Uh, how really a lot of the things that are in her list delight me. Like it had been 15 or so years since I read the whole book. And when I reread it, I, I really, I had forgotten how many of the lists of things are extremely funny to me. Yeah. They're one, they're hilarious viewed through a modern lens, but also it's just, I can't help but picturing this woman just sitting there in the salon kind of recording these random things like, man, my gossip got interrupted. Yeah. <laughs> and it becomes very, very witty in its own well, way. And one of the translations about the, uh, what you know, you're getting ready to hear something interesting is, a, is and then a baby starts crying. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the other translations of it is that specifically you were talking to the mother of the baby and she is about to tell you something interesting and her baby starts crying, which is even more like pointed in the whole hatred of babies. Oh, um, if you are interested in reading this book, I highly recommend unless you are already really well steeped in Japanese culture and particularly Japanese culture during this period, I recommend getting one that has roughly as many notes as the book is long. Yeah. Like, uh, mine that I have is edited by Ivan Morris, and it is almost the same length of text versus notes. Um, and it is that one also excludes some of the more really, really mundane lists that are like lists of nouns. I don't think that's a real one, but um, that one includes mostly the more evocative lists. So that is the story of, say, Shonagon and a little glimpse of what aristocratic Imperial court life was like uh, in Japan. While, as my medieval literature professor said when I was in college, while Europe was having fleas and wearing skins. And on that note, do you also have a bit of listener mail for us? I do. We're going to do something a little different with listener mail today. We are taking a page out of the book of Katie and Sarah, past hosts. They have had a similar listener mail encounter. Uh, We are going to read these without the names on, uh, because I'm not in favor of publicly shaming people. Unlike, say, Shonagone, <laughs> who would publicly shame you all day. Uh, so, yeah, we get a lot of mail about the podcast, and we read all of it, and we think about whether the criticism that people is leveling at us uh, is something that we need to address. And we here are three that are on the same subject. The first one is from our Facebook wall, and it says... Can y'all possibly go in a different direction for a while? Then look at this person who we think is interesting, particularly in his slash her struggle against oppression. It's getting a bit old, folks. Uh, The answer to that is no. (laughs) We really could not. Uh, But I did go back and look. Of the 20 most recent episodes when we got this note, 12 were about individual people, and three of those were two-parters, which meant that we talked about nine individual people in 20 episodes. 
three of those struggled against adversity. Four, if you count Philo T. Farnsworth, who struggled against a corporation. Uh, and really the bigger set of topics that you take, the smaller that proportion gets. So uh, my feeling is that people who struggle against oppression are largely overlooked in history class. And that's one of the reasons that we talk about them on the podcast. Well, because as we mentioned when you and I were discussing it, know history is written by the victors often mm-hmm. and those are not the oppressed people no the people who have the the mouthpiece are usually the ones that weren't doing the struggling not uh, so we have heard those stories already they're yeah. still valid stories yeah but we need to get to the the ones that are on the other side of it yeah uh, the next two are are more directly tied in terms of what they are uh, asking about the first one says, "What's with all the emphasis on gay, bisexual, transgender, etc. history lately? I've been listening to these podcasts for years, but it seems like you have gotten very preachy on this subject lately. Please remember that half of the country still holds traditional marriage as an ideal. That doesn't mean that we are haters or homophobes, but we get enough of the love that dare not speak its name on the news and don't relish being bombarded with it in our pleasure listening. This was on our Facebook wall, and there was further comment." Part of which said, I'm not necessarily saying to avoid all gay topics, but a little more objectivity would be nice. And then the other one says, I'm a longtime listener of the podcast and I've been listening since the beginning and have not missed a single episode. I've actually gone back and listened to at least a quarter of the episodes a second time. But lately I find myself resisting the urge to skip a few of the newer ones. I've never gone out of my way to send a message. That was not positive, but I feel like I should say something. I respectfully resent the very numerous podcast episodes lately that are related to gay people. Sorry if I don't use the politically correct word for this. I feel like gay people are always allowed to make their opinion very clear, so why can't a straight person? I have an opinion, too, and that doesn't seem fair that gay people can always say what they want and are quick to accuse people, and then everyone else is expected to just keep quiet. Uh, And then she went on to talk about loving the podcast... And sent us some cat pictures. So I sort of have a few points on this. Number one is that, like, I really did go back and look to say, are we overwhelmingly representing only one point of view? Um, And when we got these, the number of episodes that were about gay people was like a tiny minority. Uh, We did have some listener mail. It was specifically related to our Jane Addams episode. And that happens with every episode that we have. We generally get listener mail about it that we follow up on at a later time, so that's really not out of the ordinary. It's also not really out of the ordinary for the podcast to talk about um, the gay community. Like, that's been part of the podcast since always. Uh, So it is not a new thing. Talking about gay people, the gay community, and other marginalized groups is really not a new thing for the podcast, like I just said. Uh, Neither is doing episodes that are about people. Although I understand if you prefer to hear about uh, historical events rather than individual people, that could become tiresome. It's kind of a matter of taste. But I kind of want to just put this out there. Number one is you can say anything you want. That's allowed. Yeah. But speech has consequences. Yeah. So if we say things that are offensive to other people, people will call us on that. And that's the consequence of the speech <laughs> that we have made. Um, if someone else says something that someone else finds offensive, that's the same rule. Uh, We also talk about a lot of different subjects on this podcast. We talk about gay people and straight people. Uh, We talk about religious people and atheists. We talk about married people and divorced people. We talk about capitalists who literally bought up tuberculosis sanatoriums and tore them down so that people with tuberculosis could not go there. 
uh, and impoverished people who died because of their own government's inaction. We also talk about people who were celibate for religious and spiritual reasons and people who had non-monogamous relationships. We've talked about everyone from social workers to teachers and people who made atomic bombs. Frankly, when I am coming up with a new topic for the podcast, usually the first question that I ask myself is, what have we not talked about lately? Yeah. And I try to start there. I do the same thing. And and that is how we are trying to be objective, not by excluding any particular group of people or point of view uh, in favor of other groups of people and points of view, but to select broadly from broad people and broad points of view and broad people and places and times and all of that sort of like throwing a dart at the board of where's somewhere we haven't gone lately yeah we'll go to that place yeah so i empathize with people who find it offensive to hear about things that they don't agree with i grew up in a very conservative household very conservative uh community i get that and i empathize but we are not going to discount whole swaths of the population and whole pieces of history um because of the possibility of causing offense to a group of people. We are going to try to select diverse content to talk about in these subjects. That is basically what I have to say about that. All right. <laughs> that is my diatribe. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, you've said it all and better than I would. Again, you know, these are the people that didn't get talked about in history class because they were marginalized. So some of those are going to bubble up because those are stories that have not been told and should. Everybody's story... Uh, Elsa Lanchester made a great, to, I'll loop it back to the podcast, a great comment once that every single person you meet probably has a really interesting history or mm-hmm. an interesting life story, but we don't get to hear most of them. Uh, so I'm always appreciative for anybody's and everybody's life story because there's always a nugget of really fascinating stuff. Yeah. So open to all of them. Yes. So sometimes we will be talking about lots of different people and communities and times and places. All of that. That is our goal. And to represent all of those people fairly and compassionately. If sometimes making fun of their foibles, like when you Or the fact that they're petulant. The fact that you're complaining about babies crying when your lover is trying to sneak out. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other topic or tell us we are awful for what we just said. We are on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff and on Twitter at mistinhistory. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we are also on Pinterest. Our email address is historypodcast at discovery.com. If you would like to learn more about uh, another element of Japanese culture and one that was uh, really getting its start during the time period we talked about, you can come to our website and search the word geisha and you will find how geisha work. You can learn all that and a whole lot more at our website, which is HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has more than 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash history to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today.